Uh, turn with me to John chapter 21. We are obviously coming to the end here. This is the last chapter. Uh, we'll, we'll probably uh, spend about three weeks in this last chapter. Uh, I do have some topical things that I'm working on. I do want to do another prophecy series, so I'm working uh, on that a little bit, just kind of like what the sketch outline of that would look like. I do want to go all the way to the millennium. So I've got a couple things that we'll probably do an interim before we get back into a, a verse-by-verse uh, study, which is, which is our practice and, and generally the practice of Calvary Chapels worldwide is we like to go verse-by-verse of the Bible. And so we certainly will get back to another book, but I might have a couple topical things in the interim between us getting into our next study. But uh, we still got a couple weeks left here in chapter uh, 21, so let's pick it up with where we left off. Uh, starting in verse 1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Some of you men love to hear that, don't you? <laughs> Maybe some of you ladies too, sorry. Uh, it's an equal opportunity world here. So um, They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out immediately, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. When the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast uh, so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, uh, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. I love to hear those words, by the way. <laughs> Come and eat breakfast. I love breakfast. But uh, yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray again. Father, we bow before you. We're so thankful that, Lord, just as you serve the disciples this food, you are serving us the food this morning, this morning, this breakfast meal from John chapter 21. We pray, Lord, that our mouths would be ready, our hearts would be soft, our ears would be open to receive what you place into us. And Lord, I ask for your help, your wisdom, your anointing. Uh, Lord, I could never preach or teach your word without the help of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and each one that's here, those watching online, that you would tune their ears and heart to hear directly from you, your voice we want to hear this morning. And Lord, we want to apply what you show us and tell us and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we know that since Jesus has risen after three days being in the grave, that he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then almost immediately to the other women that came to the tomb, and they all worshipped at his feet. And then he appeared to two unnamed men on the road to Emmaus, that's what I'll be teaching, or planning to teach on Easter Sunday this year. And then near the end of that resurrection day, Jesus finally appeared to the apostles, for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. But eight days after, he appeared again to the apostles. And that day, Thomas was present, and Thomas finally believed that his Savior had risen. He saw the hands. He saw the nail prints. And here, as Jesus appears again, the scene is now in Galilee. They're not in Jerusalem. They're up in Galilee. And we're not sure how many times Jesus appeared to his disciples and the 11, uh, or the total of the 11. But we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes that sometime during that 40 days before he reascended to heaven, 
500 believers saw Jesus at one time. We also don't know precisely when in the 40 days that this scene takes place, but Jesus comes to these men that he has personally called, that he has saved, that he's trained up for three full years, that he's protected and sustained during his ministry, during his death, and now since his resurrection. He's taught them in so many ways, and hasn't he taught us in so many ways? But as the time of his departure draws near, he, is, he appears now to come and reinforce and remind. And don't we need to be reinforced and reminded? He comes to reinforce and remind all the things that he had instructed, all the things he had planted in their soul. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning. It all depends on Jesus. And all means absolutely all. Everything we are, everything we need, everything we're commanded to do, everything we endeavor to do, everything that we failed at but have to try again. You ever failed at something? Yeah, that's my, half my life. That's my week. But we have to try again. And it all depends on Jesus, and it all depends on his unlimited power. He had told them, not more than a few weeks earlier, at most, back there in the upper room in Jerusalem, and I quote it often in John 15, 5. You guys know I quote this often. For without me, you can do nothing. Now Jesus doesn't exaggerate like us. When he means nothing, he means nothing. Not some things. Well, I can do the medium things, and I give him the, the big things. I can do the small size things. I, not Nothing. Specifically, nothing as it, as it relates to the impossible kingdom work we've been given. That's really the focus of that statement. And I know that we're told in the Scriptures that on the other hand, as Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, that with him, the opposite is true. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not just football either. You know, you see guys at the, you know, that... Uh, that's not what it's, it's talking about, dying to self things. It's talking about suffering things. It's talking about getting through hard things. All the things he's called us to. The hard and difficult things. The times when we're weary. The times when we're afraid. The times when we're disappointed, distracted, apathetic. And he still says, no, I can bring you through and you can do the things I've commanded you to do. Through Christ, we can still see victory. We can still see breakthroughs. We can see disciples made. We can see us made and remade and truly revived. It truly is an all-or-nothing proposition. Christ, anything and everything. Without him, nothing. All-or-nothing proposition. But back to verse, uh, verses one, three, 1 through 4 here. And I'm not going to reread them. I just read them. But let me... In these first four verses, Jesus suddenly appears to them at the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. The city of Tiberias is still there today. John refers to it, named after Emperor Tiberius. But the night before, he comes and shows himself that morning. The night before, Peter and some of the other disciples are together. Seven of them to be exact. Peter, Nathaniel, Thomas, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and two that are unnamed. And I love this insight from G. Campbell Morgan on the unnamed. He said, they are unnamed, and I believe purposely unnamed. They represent the anonymous and hidden multitude of faithful souls whose names are never published in human documents, whose deeds are never reported in human reports, to these he manifested himself as surely as to the others. These, those other two, those two other, represent the majority of the saints. You may never get your name in light. You may never be known. You may never have anyone know your name. And I think of all the nameless, faceless saints in North Korea, in parts of the Middle East, in Africa, all over the world that many of them are far more faithful to Christ than we are. And when we get to the millennium and God's dealing out 
responsibilities, they're going to outrank us. We're going to be reporting up to them. No names, but God knows who they are. And God's going to say, well pleased to them. Now we know that Jesus was the one that had instructed the disciples to go ahead of him to Galilee. He's the one that told them to leave Jerusalem, go up to Galilee. Now eventually he's going to tell them to remain in Jerusalem until power comes on high. But for a period of time he told them to go to Galilee. He'd entrusted these instructions to Mary and the other women to give to the disciples. We know that because it's recorded in Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, Mary, Magdalene, and the women, don't be afraid. Go and tell the brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now he's way down in Jerusalem, and he say, go up to Galilee, which is where he did the majority of his ministry, and I will come meet you there. Now John doesn't record much of the conversation that took place later that evening, that first resurrection appearance to the 11, where he, well, Thomas wasn't there, but he comes to them, remember, behind the closed doors. John doesn't tell us a lot about that conversation. Jesus says, peace to you three times, and then they, they see his nail-pierced uh, hands and feet. Nor does he record a lot in the second meeting, or the second closed-door meeting where Jesus also appears, and that's where Thomas is present and believes. But it's certainly possible that in either of those settings, and if not both of them, that Jesus himself could have reminded the disciples and all those who were there, remember what I told the ladies to tell you guys, get to Galilee and I will meet you there. Get up to Galilee and I will meet you there. At any rate, they, they do go and, and now they're in Galilee. And by this time, all 11, the 12 minus 1, the 12 minus Judas, have now seen the risen Jesus they have heard him say personally to them, peace to you. They've all heard him tell them, peace to you. They've all received the Holy Spirit. They, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. They've received the Holy Spirit. And they all know that the Father is sending them into the world, just as he sent Jesus into the world. He's sending them, and they're going to go out and take the gospel. Now with the Holy Spirit in them, now with the resurrection, now with the eyewitness account, they're going to have this message. But they're not to go yet because he told them that he would see them in Galilee. So they're waiting in Galilee. Just as they'd seen him in Jerusalem, he says, you're going to see me in Galilee. And they've done what he's instructed by returning to Galilee. We're not sure how long they've been there, but they're apparently waiting for Jesus still to show up, for Jesus to arrive. And as already been the case, we've seen this in both of the closed-door settings where Jesus suddenly appears. He just, out of nowhere, walks through the walls or just, poof, he's standing there. We know that each of the times that John records that Jesus shows up, it is unexpected, it is completely surprised, he just shows up. Does that remind you of something that we're waiting for? <laughs> that he could just show up at any time and you are captured up into the clouds with him we're getting closer and closer and closer to Jesus gathering his bride. And at any time, he could show up and take us, and we're raptured up to meet him in the clouds. But on the other hand, similar to uh, referencing the Jesus revolution and the revival that took place, even though Christ already lives in us, if you're saved and you already have the Holy Spirit, he's giving you the Holy Spirit, you have the seal of salvation, we still pray for God to show up in ways that are powerful and that are different than what we're currently experiencing. And that can happen. It can be a Pentecost. It can be a early 70s revival. It can be the Welsh revival. It can be all of a sudden people get healed. There's all kinds of things. But they're waiting for Jesus to show up and they know he can arrive in an instant. And as they're waiting, they're perhaps wondering, where are they going to be sent? And these guys love to debate each other. Like, uh, I bet I'll go to Italy. I bet no, you're going to China. You're going. To, I bet you're going here. You know, whatever it may be. But they they're wondering where they'll be sent, perhaps, when they'll be sent, when's Jesus going to arrive? Will he arrive? Because sometimes they doubted the very things they believed. And for the past three years, don't forget, Jesus has been their daily shepherd. Day in and day out, their teacher, their rabbi, he's decided where they went, where they lodged, how long they stayed. 
He said, we're going through Samaria. Oh, Lord, we don't go to Samaria. Remember that? He said, Yo, you're going to Samaria. We're going to Samaria because you're going anywhere I go. But he has been their daily leading and guiding. But not just that. He's the one that made sure they had food, provision, a place to rest. He took care of all that. And even though Jesus owned nothing, God led him all through what we would call the Holy Land and all through their modern-day Israel, ancient Israel, and always knew where they were going to spend the night, where they were going to be, took care of the food, all of that. Even multiplying small meals when, when that was necessary. Remember the fish and loaves he took and, and multiplied and fed thousands. He did this on at least two occasions, perhaps more, but at least two that were recorded in the gospel. But now, since the resurrection, since Jesus has rose from the dead, He's appeared to them, John says this is the third time, he's only appeared to them two times in person. So for the other times, he's someplace else. We don't know where. We don't know where Jesus was when he wasn't with them. He's only appeared to them twice since he's rose. We don't know where he's spending his time, and we won't find out until we get to heaven. Jesus, where were you these other times? We don't know if he was in prayer. We don't know if he visited other countries. We don't know. We have no idea. Literally none. But they're waiting for him, and they're in a transition. Matter of fact, they're in one of the most unique transitions. Well, it's one of the old. There's a lot of unique ones. They're all in the Bible. But this is one of those unique transitions in all of Scripture. You see, they now have the Holy Spirit, and they're learning to listen to the Spirit. And when you first get saved, I remember when I first got saved in 1995, I started learning to listen to the Holy Spirit as you read the Word. And uh, Should I do this anymore? Uh, is this really a sin? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Should I not talk this way anymore? Should I not say this? But even more important things like, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do? Uh, what, how should I present the gospel to my family? How will this go over? All these kind of things. They're learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. They've received the indwelling. Remember Jesus said the Spirit is with you, but He will be in you. And now He's in them. And they're learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. And although Jesus isn't physically with them, remember, he's still on the earth, but he's not with them. He's only appeared to them this two times. This will be the third. He's not with them physically, yet he's still on the earth. They know he's still on the earth. He's not reascended to the Father. That's still to come. He's soon going to be leaving them and leaving this world. And although Jesus has taught them for three full years, concluding with that upper room discourse, which also took place in John chapter 12, all the way through John uh, uh, chapter 16, his post-resurrection appearances and his command uh, for them to wait for him in Galilee, it indicates to us, and it should have indicated to them, that he still has a few more things that he intends to say, teach, or do. There's a few more things, parting words, last things that he wants to show them. You know, in our house, uh, we have three girls, and there's times where me and my wife, whether we're going to be out of town, we would say, all right, we're going to be out of town We'll give a date, and uh, we'll get like a week out, and they'll say, where are y'all going again? You know, they'll ask that question. We've said this four times. This is where we're going. This, you know, we get closer to it. Then we have parting instructions, which include finer details. And that's what Jesus, here's where I'm going, but he's going to still have a few more things to convey before he goes. And, but they find themselves here in this transition. It's a 40-day transition that they don't know is a 40-day transition. They don't know how long this, he says, a little while they don't know what that means. He's in a, they're in this 40 days where he's still on the earth. He's appearing to them sometimes, but not at others. They're in this 40-day transition of not going to have Jesus face-to-face, -face, but they're going to have the indwelling Spirit of Christ in them to lead them. But transitions can be challenging and perplexing, can't they? You ever been through a transition in your life? You might be one right now. Uh, I've had many of them, and you probably have too. The longer you've been, you've been in many transitions, transitions themselves moving from one season to another. But if Jesus is your shepherd, he's going to lead you through your transitions. He's going to take you through your seasons and transition, seasons where there are changes, times of change. Look back at verse 3 here. Uh, it says in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. At some point, Peter, whether out of diligence, we don't know, whether out of I, I need to go and provide some food and income. Uh, how are we going to eat? Jesus is the one that used to take us everywhere. He made sure we had food. He's not here yet. 
Uh, I'm getting, Peter might be getting hungry. The other guys might be getting hungry. What do, has anyone got any money? No, we spent all that at the Passover. We, we long since out of money. Jesus is the one that, Judas had the treasure box, and he took all of his box. Remember? And 30 additional pieces of silver. And Judas took it all. So where, where are we going to find food and income? We don't understand. Uh, so they might be thinking that. There might be worry and concern about their provisions. Maybe they're bored to say, you know, until Jesus comes, I, um, maybe we should pass the time. Some of you might, you want, you want to, you're waiting for something and you just say, I just can't sit here. I'm going to go hit some golf balls or I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to uh, cross stitch, which is something I've never done in my life, but some of you may have. And, you know, uh, just whatever it may be, I'm going to surf my phone for the one millionth time while I wait. Uh, that's what we do today, right? Every, all the other skills have kind of fallen apart. Like, used to like be able to think of something like, oh, I can't think of anything. I'll just do this. You know that. But Peter said, I know how to fish. I'm going to go fish. Whether it be therapeutic, whether it be I, I need to catch something, we need to catch something we don't know. Uh, again, it could have been even uh, diligence, but at some point he, had to, he said, I'm going fishing. He tells the others he's going fishing. Uh, this was the profession of him and a number of the disciples. And the others say, we're going with you. That sounds like a great idea. Why didn't we think of it? So they all decide to go together, and maybe it'll pass the time while providing food and money, two things, which I don't know if you realize, but food and money are pretty important, right? Anyone need food or money? Uh, and you, you can't really have one without the other, right? So you generally need money to get food, and you need food to actually have the strength to make money, and it goes back and forth, and uh, they need that. And they all go together, seven disciples ready to make a catch. And these expert fishermen that know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand, these guys have grown up on the Sea of Galilee. This is their home turf. They know this lake. They know this lake like some of you that are fishermen. You know certain places, and they know the conditions. They know when the fish are deep, when they're shallow, how you fish at night, how you fish in the day, how you fish in rain, windy conditions. They know all that stuff as well as anybody in that area. And these seven men, with all this fishing expertise, fish all night, and it's a total failure. You ever failed at something you're actually good at? <laughs> right? I have. And you're like, I, it really irks you because like, I know this stuff. <laughs> I knew this material. I mean, I, I, should, I should knock this out of the park, whatever. You know, fail at something you're actually good at, something you actually know how to do, and then when put on the spot, you can't do it? They caught nothing. Zero fish. They fished all night. No doubt they're tired, not a little bit frustrated. We've all felt that way. And we have some hints about their frustration here. Look at verse 4. But when the morning had come, had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. As morning dawns, Jesus is standing on the shore. At first, they don't know it's him. Uh, if it's a misty, uh, we've been in the Sea of Galilee a couple times. It, uh, I was riding over the Swift Creek Reservoir here this morning. Early this morning, there was all that mist, and the Canadian geese were out, and the mallards were out, and all these different birds, and they were, they were having a blast. They did not mind the mist at all. But you couldn't see but a certain distance, and maybe they couldn't see. Uh, you get those misty mornings in the Sea of Galilee. They didn't know it was Jesus. Uh, could have been more than that. It could have been just... Uh, we're going to see that in a couple verses later. His appearance may have been somewhat obscured. And at any rate, they couldn't tell who it was. They couldn't tell that it was Jesus standing there on the shore, but they knew somebody was there. And I, I don't know, uh, but even if Jesus hadn't been there all night, he could still see them all night, couldn't he? And more than likely, he had been there for a while, observing them. Watching, and he doesn't need to be right now. He can be miles away listening to their conversation, and right now he's in heaven listening to our thoughts. Even your thoughts about what I'm saying, guys. Like, I hear what you think about that thought. All of it. He, he's observing it all. He's watching us, but he sees our fears. He sees our struggles. He sees their fears. He sees their struggles. He sees their frustration. Look at verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, so now they still don't even know, who is the guy standing on the shore? And it's early morning. Why is anyone standing on the shore? And there's someone saying, then Jesus calls out them, children, have you any food? 
Don't you love when Jesus asks questions that he knows the answer to? He doesn't need to ask them questions. He could have said, I know you don't have food. Children, you had a bad night. Children, you caught nothing. Children, there's nothing in your boat. He doesn't say. He asks them, and by the way, he asks you and I questions he knows the answer to. Why? Because he wants us to search our hearts to see what is our real motive. He might ask you, would, are you really willing to go and pray? Are you really taking steps of faith? Do you really believe what my word says? Are you really willing to share your faith? Are you willing to trust me? He asks you questions. He already knows the answer where you're at, but he wants us to probe and process, where am I really at? So he says, children, do you have any food? Interesting way to speak to them, children. The Greek meaning is children. <laughs> children means children. If you look it up in the Greek, it actually means Because sometimes Greek words don't mean the exact same thing, but this one does. Uh, a lot of times you'll look at a word in the Greek and it does mean something quite a bit different. This children means children. On the other hand, Greek always has uh, some context and has some contextual differences. Uh, and by the way, as far as just children, in relation to Jesus, we're all children. We're all toddlers to him. We're less than toddlers to him, but more, more like toddlers to him because toddlers are usually in a bad mood <laughs> and always want needy and whiny and uh, you know just when are we going to get there and all that stuff. So we're more like toddlers than just about any other age bracket compared to the Lord. But the usage here, even though children means children in the Greek, the usage is more closely related to a term that we don't really use in this country, but if you were to go to England, in the first service we had someone from the UK here, but if you go to England, uh, young men will refer to each other as lads or mates. Lads, mates. It's kind of a, a, a term of camaraderie, so it's a, a better way of saying it instead of children is the way it would kind of be used in, in, in England, the United Kingdom. Lads or mates, do you have any food? And even the word food is actually meat. Men love meat, by the way. Men or lads, do you have any meat? Do you, we might say bacon. This was Jewish, so that Jesus does not, they're still under the, you know, the law and all that stuff. They, he did not ask, do you have any bacon? You don't catch bacon in the, in the lake anyway, so you, don't, you might use bacon as bait. Do you use that, Marty? You know, so I, 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 but you don't catch it, but you do catch fish. But there's a camaraderie in the expression that Jesus uses by saying, lads, do you have any, do you have any meat? Have you caught anything? Jesus, uh, he is the authority over us, because you know, again, we're like children. But as he refers to us as lads or mates, as he refers to them, he's also with us. He's over us. It's like he's complete authority over us, but walking beside us. He's in total authority. That's a, a shepherd. He's just a pace of front of us and we're right behind. But ye, you can hear in their answer the frustration and the disappointment when they respond to Jesus' question. Hey, children, have you any food? Look at the rest of the verse. They answered, no. <laughs> Are they teenagers? This is the kind of answer you get from teens. One word answers. <laughs> Do you want to go there for dinner? No. Do you want to go here for a great? No. What do you want to do? No. I, I didn't even finish the question yet. You know, our, our teens are past that age. But some of you are still right there now. So, But they, they, their response was like that. They're not in a talkative mood. When we failed or have disappointment, we know the feeling of not being in a talkative mood. They, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about the failure of the whole night. They don't want to talk about it. We wasted all that time. It'd be one thing if we got a little bit of fish. Nothing. No. You guys are good at this, right? No. <laughs> but notice that Jesus, he's both gentle and encouraging with the disciples, even with their not-so-thrilled one-word response. And it seems to me that he sees their effort of toiling all night as evidence of diligence. And some level of proper initiative, rather than just sitting and doing nothing and just sitting around worrying about when's he going to arrive, they go and do something. I believe a lot of times God wants us to do, do something. Our country has become so lackadaisical that no one will do anything. Um, 
And it, it's, it's, it's across the board. It's not just in the body of Christ. As, as a nation. But they don't just sit around. They use the skills and the abilities that they have that God had given them. They say, you know what? We know how to fish. If a man doesn't work, he's not going to eat, Paul said. Let's just let's go catch something. Jesus seems to approve of their hard work, and he, but he also has empathy for their futility because although he allowed them to do the work, he also ensured that it would get them nothing that night. And there are times when you're going to work really hard and it seems like nothing, that was worthless. We did all that for nothing. You ever prepared a meal and got your home ready and someone calls last minute, oh, we're not coming after all. You're like, have you heard of a grocery bill? <laughs> have you heard of this? Now, if they get sick and stuff, you're fine. But if it's not a great reason, you have to wrestle with that a little bit. Like, you better have the flu or COVID <laughs> or something. But they had, Jesus had empathy for their futility and their lack of success. Uh, perhaps Jesus, it's possible that Jesus might have preferred that they chose an all-night prayer meeting. I think it's very possible. Some scholars would think that, uh, that they, they did all this out of fear and worry. It, all those are possible. We don't know. I'm just saying Jesus doesn't correct them here. He doesn't seem to give them any admonishment or correction. So from my viewpoint, it seems like Jesus is somewhat approving that they did something. Although maybe the all-night prayer meeting would have been the better something, but at least they did something. And if you have kids, you're glad they do something rather than nothing. A, a try is better than no try at all. And they do try. They try really hard, and he doesn't correct them, but he is about to test their obedience and their humility. And God, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, is going to do a lot of time where he's going to test your obedience and your humility. He will humble you and see if you're going to be obedient. Because it's pretty humbling for them to go all night and frustrating and caught nothing. And he says to them in verse 6, cast the net on the other side. Now that doesn't mean they haven't cast it on the other night, other side plenty of time. They had an all-night fishing expedition. I would imagine they said, let's try it on this side. Let's try it on the front of the boat. Let's try it on the rear of the boat. Let's try it on this side. All kinds of sides. You ever have a night where you can't sleep? Say, I'll sleep on this side. I'll sleep on my back. I'll sleep on this side. I'll sleep on my stomach. I'll go back here. You've tried every side that there is. There's no more sides to try. And then God says, why don't you try the left side? You don't think I tried the left side? At some point, they probably had tried it, but Jesus just tells them, cast it on the other side. At that moment, with zero fish, when Jesus says the other side, it appears, although they can't tell it's Jesus. Remember, they can't tell, is it, is it the Lord? They don't know who's on the shore, but when he speaks, they know that voice. And when he says the other side, we believe at this point they know it's Jesus because they immediately do. If it was just some random stranger from Galilee, they're like, we already know how to fish, dude, you know? That's not what they say. They immediately throw it exactly where Jesus said it. Even if they have done that a hundred times a night, and what happens next well, then they know if they were pretty convinced it was Jesus enough to obey the command and be humble enough to do it, then they know it's Jesus because only Jesus can produce what happens next, which is the impossible, the unexplainable, the miraculous. From zero fish to an overflowing net in a matter of seconds. Brother and sister, we can, we can pray, we can witness, we can serve, we can labor but Jesus might give one small little instruction and it's time he brings the harvest. I, I thought that when we were watching the Jesus Revolution. Pastor Chuck and Kay, they loved the Lord. They prayed. They fasted. Chuck would teach the word and nothing was happening. But God gave him one little tweak and said, I want you to look at these hippies a little bit different. Everything else he did the same. Teach the same. Pray the same. Just change this little bit and then... But it's still all up to God, right? I mean, you and I can't make fish get in the net. We can cast a net, but we can't make them get in the net. This is the last, uh, this is the last recorded miracle. God is the one that brings the timing. God is the one that brings the harvest. But this is the last recorded miracle in the earthly life of Jesus. Look back at verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, 
It is the Lord. So John says to Peter, the disciple who Jesus loved is John, it is the Lord, exclamation point. Now when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, all, put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. John turns to Peter, and almost like a high-five exclamation, because Jesus cast the net. They're like, all right, well, I think that, that's, his, that's the voice of Jesus. We should do this. They do it. Then all the fish get in the net. Now we know it's Jesus, because then John turns to uh, Peter, and a Captain Obvious moment says, this is the Lord. <laughs> Peter's like, duh, I know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hauling 153 fish, and so they're both excited. They know their risen Savior has no limitations. He's shown up. And Peter basically, to use our kind of uh, modern day, the way we dress, throws on a T-shirt. Uh, it's not a T-shirt, obviously. He has this other garment that he pulls up and ties, but he throws on uh, what would effectively be like a t-shirt for us and plunge into the water because in the ancient times you did not go to a superior bare-chested like that. You would make sure that you were dressed for the occasion. So Peter throws on, it would be normal to fish like that. They're hot, there's you know, all night, it's kind of dirty, sweat, whatever, but he throws on that uh, garment and dives, uh, plunges in to the water and either swims his way all the way there or when he gets to waist level walks the rest of the way up to the shore to Jesus and then in verse 8 they continue to row, the disciples row in this, this small boat, the other six of them still in the boat fish laden, pulling the net that's behind the boat now full of fish and when they get there in verse 9 you can look at verse 9 uh, then as soon as they had come to land they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. So they get there and they can see that Jesus has prepared a fire and there is fish already roasting on the fire and bread. We were talking yesterday at the, the breakfast we did for the servant leaders and we were serving them and I was talking and I said tomorrow I'll be in the uh, John chapter 21. That's because we were having breakfast yesterday. We were having not the most kosher meal. We had bacon, we had sausage, we had eggs, uh, there was no fish. Uh, if you know my wife, she hates seafood. <laughs> Loathes seafood of all kinds. I mean, don't be offended if you like it, but she doesn't like seafood, doesn't like shellfish. She grew up, we were both born in Chesapeake Bay. I was born in Annapolis, she was born in Hampton. We were both, uh, I like crabs and seafood and all that stuff. Uh, you're, like, you're like kicked out of Annapolis if you don't like that stuff. But, uh, uh, but she grew up uh, on the Chesapeake Bay in Hampton and, and doesn't like any of that stuff, but I, I said to the group, and I, my wife, I said, now if Jesus cooked you fish, would you eat it? She said yes. Because uh, I, I have this feeling that everyone in the world would like the meal that Jesus prepares. And you would have never had bread like Jesus provided. Say, I'm gluten-free. She's like, I already know that. You're, you're taken care of. I can only eat this kind of wheat. You don't have to worry, if I made the meal, this is going to be the best digestion and flavor you've ever had. But all that's sitting there on the coals, waiting for them. Jesus had suddenly arrived. He, he immediately blesses their, un, he tells them, he gives them a command, but then he blesses their unfruitful night with 153 fish jumping into the net. Now he has breakfast waiting for them. Don't you love it when you come back from somewhere and breakfast is already wet, ready? You hate it when you have to make it. You're like, you, you, ours, if there's ever going to be a big breakfast day in our house on a Saturday, we like to eat it, but we hate to make it or clean up after it. <laughs> but if somebody else does all the work, you're like that. But Jesus, every detail matters, even the small things. He's prepared them a place. He's prepared a setting there on the shore to meet with them, to teach them, to give them some parting instructions. It's not the end of the instructions, but part of the, these last 40 days to encourage them, to nourish them with this meal. And I would say that by the Spirit, he prepares a morning breakfast of encouragement. And he, he, I've talked about before that that word encouragement means to give courage. When you encourage someone, the original connotation is to give someone courage. Now it means more than that. It's to, it's to put along... So, an arm around someone and to let them know you care. But the, the full original meaning is to give courage. And every single day when we sit down and we have a meal with Jesus, he's going to give you courage. He's going to give you relationship. He's going to give you his own presence. If you'll open his word, he will feed you perfect bread. Verse 10, 
coming to a close here in verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. He says, bring some of what you have labored for, even though the meal that's already ready for them, they have not labored for that. He says, I want to take what you have labored for and I want to turn it into something useful. Bring the fish. I'm going to, and maybe he even shows them, I don't think Jesus had to cook, he just say, Fish, loaves, be there. Poof, they're there. But he's not going to do that with theirs. He's going to show them, here's how I want you to prepare it. And while they eat, he's already prepared this uh, meal, but he will take what they labored and caught, and he's going to take what they've brought in, and he's going to use it. And everything that we actually ever acquire, we actually give it right back to Jesus. Amen? I, I earned this paycheck. That's why we give unto the Lord time, talent, treasure. We take what he allows us to bring in. And by the way, they don't even have any fish to bring him if he didn't put this fish in the net. So he says, bring what you've caught, and we give it back to him, and we kind of follow his guidance and what he wants to do with whatever he does in our life. And Peter drags, and then uh, we say that um, in verse 11, Simon Peter went out and dragged the net. Peter's got some muscle here. You know, Peter's like, just give me the whole net. And he grabs, he was always a man of action, wasn't he? He takes the sword, uh, Malchazir, gone, uh, here, you guys are moving too slow. Jesus said, fish, what's taking you all so long? I will drag the net myself. And he grabbed and brings the net. 153 large fish are in this. It says large fish. Uh, that's 21.85 large fish per seven disciples or 13.9 fish per 11 because we don't know where the other four guys were. If they were somewhere else and met them there, we don't know. But the word large, where it says large fish uh, in the Greek, it means uh, great and it can refer to size or age, great number of years, maturity. Earlier in Jesus' ministry back in Luke chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus essentially did the same exact miracle. They toiled all night, and he said, cast down your nets for a catch. And when that miracle took place, remember the nets broke, uh, and they were breaking. It wasn't a complete break, but there was some breakage in the nets. And when that happens, no doubt some of the fish got away, some of the fish swam away. But here... There's no breaking. Every one of the 153 fish stay in the net. And here's the thing. When we see people walk forward and get saved, we don't want them to swim away or walk away. We want them to stay. Amen? Yeah. You want everyone that comes into the net to stay in the net. Jesus got me in the net in 1995. I've never left the net. How about you? You want to stay there. You want, to, you want God to keep you. All 153 fish remain, and they're secured. This 153 is an odd number. I understand it really is mathematically an odd number. Uh, 150 would be an even number. 152 would be an even number. But I don't mean that in numerically, but just kind of an odd number. You think, why 153? Most Bible, you know, we see number 7 or 40 years in the wilderness, or we see, uh, you know, 12. Is very, these are very prominent numbers, or 6 is the number of man. And we see, but 153, there's really no, and there is a lot of different schools of thought on you can go out and read different Bible commentaries. Some of the ancient, uh, or not some of the ancient, but some of the fathers in the faith looked at that 153 number in various ways. And some of them have, are plausible. Uh, it is an interesting number because it just seems kind of uh, obscure or odd that 153, not, not around 160, not 200, 153. This is my personal view on why it is this number. Uh, because it's specific. The Bible makes clear that, that John records 153. I believe because every individual soul individually matters to God. And he's showing you that even some, when, at the end of the age, when all the souls that will ever be saved, it'll be some number that might be obscure to us, but completely known to God. Amen? He knows the exact number that are in the net. And it might be one number that we could never conjure up, but he says, this is it. Now, Jesus had told Peter when he originally called him that he would make him a fisher of men. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And all this is, is, is foreshadowing what's about to happen that, because it's not going to be too long before Peter's going to stand up at Pentecost and a bunch of fish are going to jump into the net of salvation on Pentecost, and Peter is going to see that it wouldn't be him that got them into the kingdom, just like he couldn't get the fish. They, they tried all night. They couldn't get one single fish. You, you can witness till the day is over and not get one person to convert, and God says, now I will move on their hearts, and all of a sudden 
it happens. And that would happen at Pentecost. It was kind of foreshadowing what is going to happen not too long from this point. Lastly, verses 12 through 14, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They still, now they're in his presence and he still doesn't look exactly the way he did before he went to the cross and before the resurrection. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Knowing that it was, but they know it's the Lord. Knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus then came and took bread and uh, took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. Now this is the third time that Jesus has shown himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Lastly, Jesus invites the disciples to come and eat breakfast with him. Uh, notice that just like the morning of the resurrection, uh, again, Jesus looks different. Mary couldn't even recognize him until she said, Mary, and then she says, Rabboni, she realizes it's him. But for whatever reason, and we're not sure why Jesus looks different in his glorified state, if he's still veiling some of himself to them, we don't know. And it's really not even worth trying to come up with an answer because we just simply don't know why he doesn't look exactly the same. But they know his voice. They know his voice. They know his power. They know no one else could put all those fish into the net. And if they still don't know it, they will know his love and humility that he wants to share this time with them. And he's so humble. They should be serving him breakfast, not the other way around. Amen? They should be making him breakfast, but he has made them breakfast. And by the way, maybe Jesus looks different even to the disciples who were there with him. And they can't fully recognize him because all future believers, we won't see him physically, like I'm touching this pulpit, we won't see him physically, but we can see him in his word and hear his voice through the Spirit. And it's kind of maybe foreshadowing all the rest of us will be in that same place where we're going to have to see him in the Spirit, in the life of the Spirit, and he's already giving them a taste in this transitional period of moving from his physical presence to his spiritual presence in their life. But again, these are just observations that we don't conclusively know. We'll learn more about that when we meet him in heaven. He can tell us all that was going on here. But again, he serves them. And just as he did in the Last Supper there in the Passover meal where he broke the bread and gave it to them, here he gives them bread. And instead of bread and wine, it is the fish that he's going to give them. He's going to give them souls. He's going to put fish in their hand. He's going to give them the bread of life, which is for their nourishment, but he's also going to uh, nourish every bit of it. They need the protein. They need all that stuff the fish has, but it's also symbolic that they'll become fishers of men, that he's going to place souls within their hands, and they're going to have to do uh, with them what he's done for them and take good care. But he desires to do the same thing for you, you and I, to, to spend this time with us, to nourish us, to give us the fruit of his ministry. And the whole time he's sitting there with them and, and having breakfast with them, he's also nourishing, uh, not in addition to nourishing them, he's softening them. These men have been softened dramatically in the last three years, but there's still some more softening. I don't know how, how long you've been saved, but there's some more softening God wants to do in you. There's still some more refining he wants to do in you. There's still some more he wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And he's revealing in them in his humility. He'd already washed their feet just a little while, maybe two or three weeks earlier, washed their feet. Now he's feeding them breakfast. He is gently dealing with their frustration of the night, taking care of all their needs. He really is taking care of the whole morning. It went from bad night to an incredible morning. But he's showing all this love and gentleness. And all this would have some effect on them. And I love how Charles Spurgeon um, interprets this moment. He says, they ate the bread and fish that morning. I doubt not in silent self-humiliation. Peter looked with tears in his eyes at that fire of coals, remembering how he stood and warmed himself when he denied his master. Thomas stood there, wondering that he should have dared to ask uh, such proofs of a, most, uh, of a fact most clear. All of them felt that they could shrink into nothing in his divine presence since they had behaved so ill. They'd all been scattered. And all of them, and, and Jesus is like making this, and they're like, he's right. Peter looking at those coals, last time I was warming myself like this, I looked in your eyes and I said, I don't even know him. And there they all are, and he is being so gentle with all their failures and their frailties, and doesn't he do that with us? 
And isn't he doing that even this morning with us? But he showed them that he was faithful, that he loved them. As he said, I would love them to the end. And he's their sole provider, and he's our sole provider. And I want to close with this overarching observation, kind of seeing the big picture, kind of raise it back up like 10,000 feet. Look back down on this entire scene, on this entire morning from the night to, uh, from the middle of the night to here with Jesus having breakfast with them. The first point, and I'll just read them off one by one. They were laboring while Jesus was watching. He's fully aware of your effort. He's fully aware of what you're doing, what you're not doing. They were laboring while Jesus was watching. Number two, they were trying hard while Jesus came and gave them clear direction. Because you can try as hard as you want, but you need the wisdom of God. You need God to say, yes, you're trying, but you are in the wrong, you're on the wrong street. Move over here. Number three, they were casting a wide net, but only Jesus could actually fill the net. We're trying to cast a wide net here at Calvary Chapel. We've got the live stream uh, up right now. We're trying to hit people out there on the internet. We're trying to talk to people throughout the week. We're trying to pray for this city to have revival. We can cast as wide a net as we want, but only Jesus can fill the net. Number four, they were using the only hands, boat, and net they had. And Jesus made those tools fruitful. Hey, well, I never graduated from high school or I never got a master's degree, right? I'm not the smartest person in the room. I don't have this. I don't, I don't have enough money. I, uh, have you seen my car? Whatever else it may be. God doesn't care about any of that. He says, if you're available, I'll take your tools and use them. Number five, they were discouraged, but Jesus encouraged them. He can take our discouragement and turn it to Courage. Number six, they were hungry, but Jesus fed them. And number seven, they were weary, but Jesus welcomed, served, and refreshed them. All of these things are panoramic views of parts of our life, and sometimes all at the same time. And Jesus says, what I did there, I still do right now, and I want to do for you. Amen? Amen. Brother and sister, uh, your life, your steps, your next week, all depend on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just bow again before you. We recognize that uh, we've ended up in a place of salvation because you cast a net and the Spirit brought us in. And Lord, as you now have had us take and follow in your footsteps and and you want us now to to do these same things, Lord, uh, often it is fruitless, often it is frustrating, but uh, we know that you're watching. You are able to step in in a moment. And I don't know what all the needs are in this room, but Lord, you do and you know that Uh, I know that you can intervene in any situation and Lord, uh, you are desiring also to spend time with us, to give us the word that is the living uh, bread of life yourself. Not just for salvation, but the sustaining of our daily life and Lord, to spend time with us and to warm us by the fire of the Holy Spirit instead of a fire of coals. And Lord, all of these things we can see just a glimpse of, of and we don't even have time to touch on it all this morning, but we know Jesus All of our life depends upon you.